Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. In 1567, a fleet of ships led by John Hawkins sailed from Plymouth, England, on a slaving expedition. On board, among some 400 others, was a sailor named David, known to his friends as Davy Ingram. The expedition travelled through West Africa and the Caribbean before a hurricane caused the ships to be marooned near Tampico, Mexico, in October 1568 where they would engage in battle with the Spanish. The survivors, about half the original number, would divide into two groups. One, with meagre supplies and a damaged ship, would attempt to sail to England, while the others took their chances on the mainland. Most ended up in Spanish captivity, but a few escaped northwards. Only three of those would ever be rescued. Davy Ingram was among them. Eleven months later, Ingram and his two fellows were rescued by a French ship near the Gulf of Maine. They had travelled over 3,000 miles from the Gulf of Mexico along the east coast of North America to reach Nova Scotia in what is now Canada. When an account of this journey was published by Richard Hakluyt in 1589, it incorrectly cobbled together Ingram's testimony into a tale that read more like fantasy than reality leading to the near-continual assumption of David Ingram as a fraud for the past 400 years. Today I'm joined by Dean Snow, author, archaeologist and professor emeritus of anthropology at Pennsylvania State University, whose new work, The Extraordinary Journey of David Ingram, re-examines the truth of Ingram's story and what his evidence tells us of the people and natural world of Africa, the Caribbean and North America in the late 16th century. Professor Snow, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you so much for sharing your new work with us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I wonder if we can start our conversation, as you do in the book, with Sir Francis Walsingham's interrogation of David Ingram in August 1582. What was it that prompted this investigation 12 years after Ingram's return to England? And what was the Crown attempting to learn from him? The problem that they had was that the Queen, Elizabeth, was interested in expanding British colonization towards America. And there were quite a few wealthy 
people around her that mostly men who were interested in financing such a venture. And they all realized that they knew nothing about the continent. The Spanish had been here in the Caribbean for a number of years, and the French were already on the St. Lawrence River in what is now Canada. But the British didn't know anything really about what they were contemplating doing, and they needed the context. They needed to find out about what they should expect to find when they came to the east coast of North America. And Walsingham had discovered that the only person alive who was English and had gone through the interior of North America on the eastern side of the continent was a sailor who had been marooned there 12 years earlier. And so they said, well, let's bring him in for interrogation. And that was the reason for David Ingram being brought to the court in London and interrogated. Interestingly, then, if the main object was to learn information about the new world, then the members of Walsingham's panel wouldn't actually have had the information necessary to test the validity of what Ingram was telling them. That's right. They all, including Walsingham, lacked much of the background information that they would need to evaluate what he was saying. And each of them also had an agenda of his own. Humphrey Gilbert was very interested in having a base for privateering against the Spanish, the seizure of Spanish treasure ships. Peckham was interested in finding a place where Catholics could be relocated out of the reach of Protestant persecution. So there were a number of people involved in this, and each of them had a different agenda, but none of them had what they really needed to evaluate what this common sailor, probably functionally illiterate, was telling them. So, for example, Ingram had been part of a slaving expedition under the Queen's slaver, John Hawkins, and they had gone to Africa first. When Ingram arrived, he apparently thought he was there to tell his story. And his story started in Africa at the beginning, logically enough. And so he was talking about things like elephants and hippos and leopards and so forth. Well, they did not have the background information to know where he was when he saw those elephants. And Richard Hacklute, who was probably present for part of it at least, and his agent was there the whole time, later made the big mistake of assuming everything that Ingram had told them related only to North America. And so the report that Hacklute then wrote based upon the records of the interrogation included references to elephants and iron tools and all sorts of things that they didn't realize weren't possible in North America. They didn't exist here. And the result was that the record of his adventures that was published was full of errors and has led to Ingram being regarded as a compulsive liar ever since. He's been vilified for 400 years and dismissed including by people like me. I wrote two articles in the 1970s in which I said, well, we have Ingram, but we can't trust him. And I had a change of heart when I finally went and looked at the original records from the interrogation, which no historian except for David Beers Quinn had done in the 20th century. So you spotted that Ingram has been continually thought to be a fantasist, and that comes from some of this misplaced information and some of the apparently contradictory nature of what he's saying as his testimony. How did you go about correcting the record? 
Well, what prompted me to do it was I had some correspondence with David Beers Quinn back in the 19, late 1970s. And shortly before he died, he published a very short biographical sketch of Ingram and said, now the guy's a liar, but there might be something there. He saw something that he couldn't quite put his finger on. And so I went back to the original three manuscripts that relate to Ingram's interrogation and realized that the reason that historians, apart from Quinn, had not looked at these carefully was that they're written in secretary hand, which is very difficult. It created job security for secretaries back in the 16th century, but it made life difficult for anybody trying to use their documents in subsequent centuries. Everybody had gone and used Hacklute's 1589 publication of the relation of David Ingram as their source and had not looked more deeply into the sources for that source. And that's why I discovered David Ingram had been dismissed as a travel liar for all these years. Well, let's talk a bit about what you found from this process of returning to the sources and compiling them together. We are talking about a man who is an Elizabethan sailor, as you've said. What can his voyages tell us about the practice of slave trading that was beginning at this time from England first? It was a brand new phenomenon. The idea of race-based slavery was very new. The word race had been in the English language for a long time, but it meant a competition. The idea of it being a biological category was something that was brand new. And it was borrowed from Italian, probably, and then became the focus of the slave trade because there were convenient reasons to believe that people of African descent really were born to be servants. And this would be a good source for slave labor. And Hawkins realized that he could go to Africa, work that side of things to acquire people, load into ships, haul them across the Atlantic to the Caribbean and sell them illegally to Spanish colonists around the Spanish main and other parts of the Caribbean. And he was very successful at that the first two times he did it. And this was his third voyage. And the queen had contributed a flagship to this, and she was one of the investors. Elizabeth had a negative view of slavery when she was a young woman, but overcame her scruples when she seems to have realized that she could make a lot of money funding and investing in this kind of activity. And everybody did make a lot of money on the slave trade in those years. Yet you talk of Ingram's curiosity and empathy towards Africans. So how can we align this with his being on a slaver's ship? It's a quandary. I address that at the very end of the book. We have to deal with the fact that this guy was a slaver. But everything he said was framed in a very sympathetic voice when it came to the peoples that he encountered, whether they be American Indians here or Africans there. It's really quite remarkable. A man with no formal education was, in effect, a kind of natural historian in the way he viewed the world. And if you hear it and read it in what he says, he was very curious about the plants and the animals that he was encountering, especially those things that didn't look anything like what he was accustomed to in England. 
And he was very sympathetic with regard to his view of the people that he encountered in Africa and around the Caribbean and in North America. It's a fairly remarkable mix of things. I think he probably signed on as a crew member on the Jesus of Lubeck, which was the ship that the Queen had loaned to Hawkins. He grew up and was living in what is now suburban London. So he was near the place where he'd get work as a sailor. And sailors could enjoy a much better income on a slave ship than in most shipping at that time, because they could do a little trading on the side of their own. So they were paid a bit better, and they had opportunities for a little bit of entrepreneurial behavior when they got to the locations where the slaves were being offloaded and sold. I wonder if his lack of education was actually helpful in this sense of seeing the other as human. He hasn't read Pliny's natural history, and he hasn't read Ptolemy's geography, and so perhaps he hasn't got this kind of set of ideas that he's bringing to his encounters in the same way as perhaps more educated men might have done. That's a very good point. He was naive in a very helpful way, perhaps. He was not indoctrinated. He did not have the kind of book learning that his betters had at that time. And much of what they had learned was a delusion. There were arguments made for why people from Africa could be considered something just a little less than fully human. And it came straight out of the Old Testament, which was taken as an authority by most people. So there was that blind spot that his betters, people like Walsingham and Gilbert, probably shared. Now, it's interesting that Gilbert's half-brother, Walter Raleigh, had a much more 20th century view of the people that he expected colonists to encounter. And he was very worried that he not be a colonist, rather a planter of plantations. And he thought that distinction was an important one. He also encouraged the people that he sent out when they actually got around to colonizing to be generous with the people they encountered. And that happened. The Roanoke Colony, which went out in the 1580s, came to the outer banks of the Carolinas here on the east coast of North America. They had very good relations initially with the population they encountered here. Two men came back to London with the colonists, and Thomas Harriot was put in charge of writing the ethnography of these guys. And taking down their language. He invented a method for recording the languages that they encountered over here. This was a first. He was a remarkable scientist and really, really good linguist. He eventually came back over with a later ship that came back to Roanoke, along with John White, the artist. And the two of them together recorded remarkably accurate things about the natives of this part of America. And that was all at Raleigh's doing. So there's a mix here of motives and expectations. But what's extraordinary is Ingram's testimony is predating Harriet and his Algonquian collaborators. It's That's taking right. us further back. So what can we learn about West Africa and the Caribbean, their people and wildlife? Give me some ideas what we can learn from Ingram's testimony. He was fascinated with the fruits that he encountered. 
when I was a graduate student, which is many years ago now, there was a great debate about where bananas came from. And it turns out that he has something to say about that. The Portuguese spread bananas to West Africa from their Southeast Asian origins, and then they sent them off to the Caribbean. There were banana trees in both Africa and the Caribbean by that time. He thought bananas were terrific. And as you say, he anticipated a lot of the observations of Harriet and White, and therefore tells us a few things that we would not know otherwise, and a lot of other things that were later confirmed by White and Harriet. Iron tools were frequently found in Africa and not found at all in North America. That became a point of great confusion because when Hacklut published his version of Ingram's story, he made it sound as if there were iron tools all over eastern North America. Another thing that occurred was that when he was traveling from Mexico to New Brunswick, Ingram and the two men with him discovered that they could profitably pick up shell beads, which were of marine origin coming from the north coast of the Gulf of Mexico. And the farther north they got, the more valuable they were. They were small, easy to carry, and increased in value as they went north. They were able to keep themselves well-fed, sheltered, and clothed for 11 months as they hiked for 3,600 miles out of Mexico and up the East Coast to New Brunswick, what is now Canada. So they inadvertently are telling us that there was a vast trail system in the Eastern Woodlands. They were telling us that there were traders on that trail system that they ran into almost every day. Parties of traders who would give them advice upon what would sell where they were headed. It was a remarkable world that all came to a devastating end in the next century because diseases like smallpox and measles, common diseases in Europe at the time, came and destroyed local populations. And a native population and a 60% mortality rate in a single episode of smallpox was common. So this had a huge disruptive effect on the native peoples of America in the 17th century. But Ingram saw all of that before any of that depopulation occurred. And so what we see are people that are thriving. And these cultures were, in many cases, gone in 100 or 200 years. It's so exciting when you put it like that, because it's this glimpse of a culture that will soon be extinguished. And Ingram gives us access to it, albeit massively mediated through other people recording it and asking the questions, often leading questions and so on. But you've just alluded to this extraordinary journey that he makes with his two companions, Richard Brown and Richard Twyde. Can we talk a little bit more about what led to that journey on foot from the Gulf of Mexico? We've got a hurricane that sends the fleet into a Spanish port. What do we know about the battle that ensued there? They were uh, almost destroyed by a hurricane and they were forced to go land at what is now Veracruz, Mexico, in order to restock, in order to get home. And unfortunately, they arrived there just a few days before the Spanish treasure fleet with a bunch of large ships that were ready to receive the treasure that had been looted over the prior year in Mexico, gold and silver mostly, loaded up and take it back to Seville. And 
the short version is that after a few days, they got into a horrendous battle. And the Queen's flagship was sunk. Other ships were sunk. One of the small ships escaped under the command of Francis Drake, who was a kinsman of John Hawkins. And Hawkins himself and about half of his 400 men escaped on the Minion, which was a smaller ship that managed to survive the battle. They sailed northward along the Gulf Coast of Mexico, and Hawkins realized they couldn't possibly make it back to England with 200 men aboard the ship. There were supplies for only a fraction of those. And so he put it to the men. He said, you can take your chances ashore or you can take your chances aboard this ship. But I can tell you that half of you will be dead by the time we get to England, if that's the choice you make. Predictably, any game theorist would tell you what would happen next. It split about 50-50. And there was a lot of argument back and forth and people trying to persuade one another each in a variety of ways. And a hundred men got put ashore around about where Tampico, Mexico is today. And they ran into trouble almost immediately. There were nomadic peoples in that area who were very hostile. They attacked. Hawkins had given them all bolts of cloth to use as trade material. Some of them lost that. It was stolen by some of the hunter-gatherers that they ran into. Some of the men were killed. A number of them decided that they would just give up and go turn themselves into the Spanish. And eventually, something on the order of three-quarters of them did that. That left about 25 people who decided to try to escape northward. Ingram and his two friends knew that there was a French colony in what is now northern Florida. And if they could just get there, they might be able to find a ride home. And they knew that these folks were friendly because Ingram had been on the previous second journey that Hawkins had made, the slaving trip a few years earlier. And they had stopped at that site in Florida and had offered the French some help and that sort of stuff. And they knew that they would have a friendly reception, they thought. So they headed north. Most of the other of the two dozen people that headed in that direction just disappeared from history. We have no idea what happened to them. Some of them were killed, I would presume. Some of them were absorbed by local Indian cultures. These three guys kept going, and they got, over the course of the winter, they got to northern Florida, where the Indians let them know that French colony had disappeared. The Spanish had come and wiped them out, murdered everybody in the colony. That meant that they had no hope of getting rescue at the French colony. So they put their heads together and decided that the only other place they could think of where they might find a friendly reception from Europeans would be Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, Eastern Canada. And they struck off in that direction, following initially the very same trail that Hernando Soto had followed decades earlier on his entrada into North America. And this turned out to be a successful strategy. They ended up walking a total of about 3,600 miles, and they had good receptions everywhere they went along this trail. They were itinerant traders by this time. And they had picked up on the sign language that American Indians used to communicate with each other when they were doing long-distance trading, because there were hundreds of different languages in North America at the time. You couldn't learn enough 
additional languages to communicate that way. So there was a sign language they used. And these guys picked up on it as easily as anybody else and made their way northward. And they got as far as the interior of New Brunswick. And they were told through sign language by the locals that there was a ship, a European ship at the mouth of the river. They made one last leg of their journey down that river as quickly as they could and found the ship, the French ship Gagarin, and it was an easy negotiation to get a ride back to Europe. On American History Hit, we ride the wild Oregon Trail, delve deep beneath Central Park, and fight the Forgotten War of 1812. Join me, Don Wildman, and my expert guests as we uncover the stories that have shaped America in all its endless complexity. We'll follow John Wilkes Booth as he shoots President Lincoln and goes on the run. And we'll walk under the stars with Harriet Tubman as she finds her way to freedom. Follow America's story from the first Native people to footprints on the moon on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, with new episodes every Monday and Thursday. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's so much I want to know about their interiority that this account doesn't give us. How they travelled so far in this incredible journey, hoping to find a way home as they settled into the Indigenous life that was there. But one question I have for you is, how did you go about organising Ingram's testimony into a map of their likely route? 
because so much of their journey has been doubted until now. Well, we have pretty good maps of the trail system that existed at that time, compiled by archaeologists over the last century. So that was in hand. And what I was able to do was identify from the internal evidence of what Ingram told us certain waypoints, about a dozen of those, which were places that he passed through. And each of those is identified for a different reason. It has to do with topography or it has to do with the choices that they had to have made with regard to which trails to follow and which ones to avoid. It's a complex story, but I was able to nail down that double handful of waypoints and then use the trail system to discover the most likely legs between the waypoints. The web of the trail system as we know it is much more fine-grained than just the few waypoints that we can be certain of. So that's how I reconstructed the route. Others have attempted the same thing and have come to similar conclusions, so that was encouraging. There's one man who in the 20th century reproduced Ingram's walk by hiking from Canada to Mexico, the opposite direction. And the choices he made were the same logical ones that Ingram made for the most part. And he completed his journey in about the same amount of time. I should point out that one of the things that has made many historians dubious is that it just seemed like an impossible thing to hike that far in 11 months, but it's not. And it turns out that various people have done it and through hikers who still walk along the ridge of the Appalachian Mountains every summer, typically do 15 miles per day. That is the standard distance that an army would march in that same era. And if you look at a map of North America, you discover that the wagon trains and the pedestrians that went west to settle this continent in the later centuries also went about 15 miles a day. I come from one of those little towns out in the center of the continent that is about 15 miles from all the towns north, south, east, and west of it. That was the distance that a person with an ox cart could go in a day. And so the modern topography and the modern settlement pattern reflects that. If you just assume that they were doing 15 miles a day on average, they could get there in considerably less than 11 months, they would have had over 80 days for rest and recuperation in addition to their travel time. So it's not an impossible thing at all. It's in fact been replicated many times since. What struck me very much in your book is the extraordinary number of birds and plants that Ingram remembered after 12 years. How and why do you think he maintained that curiosity for the natural world? although he would have been in very challenging conditions, one would have thought. And these clues about native birds and plants and insects help prove that his story is true, don't they? He would see a bird that looked like something that he knew from England, a lark or a curlew. We know because the birders have been watching these birds for decades, and we know where they nest in the wintertime. We know where they go in the summer. We know the timing of their migrations. And that's one of the ways in which you can nail down waypoints, at least to small areas. The other is that he was spotting plants. 
that he thought were very interesting and describing them. So we know that he chanced upon the honey mesquite in Texas. And this became one of the things they were carrying for trade purposes early on. And other plants, pineapple and things like the nopal cactus, these were exotic to him. And the more exotic, the better. He saw a bird in the Caribbean area, which turned out to be the harpy eagle. It was an immense bird, the way he described it. Well, that bird still exists. This is a big eagle that is large enough to carry off a monkey. Many of the historians saw that description and thought, well, that's preposterous. Well, go get a bird guide to the Caribbean and you'll see that it's not. This thing exists still today. He was fascinated by rattlesnakes. This is an American critter. You don't see snakes with rattles anywhere else. I'm a little surprised he never mentioned hummingbirds, which are also a North American or South American as well set of species that are very interesting, very distinctive. But if he noticed, if he saw them, he didn't know what they were. He might have even mistaken them for large insects. And so there are a few things that I was a little surprised he didn't report, but a good number of things that he did. He describes the manatee, which I see almost daily where I am right now. These are immense creatures. They're mammals and they live in salt water. They prefer fresh water, but they come into salt water to feed. They weigh about a ton when they're at their adult size. And he describes them with great precision. And of course, Walsingham and the people sitting in that interrogation room in London didn't know what to make of that description. And it was sort of monstrous on its face. He said, its face is in its chest. Well, manatees are so fat that what it looks like is they have no head at all, that the face is in fact in the upper chest. And it's because there's so much fat around their necks that you can't really see the separateness of their heads. And he also described the little hairs they have all over them that they use as sensory organs for navigation. So the guy had a really good eye, and he was particularly fascinated by the most extraordinary of the plants and animals that he encountered. But you're speaking to me from Florida, and I'm hearing this in Oxfordshire, and I feel a little bit like we're recreating this transfer of information, the information Ingram brought back to England. What else does he tell us about how much he has to rely on indigenous communities. We've talked a little bit about trade, a little bit about information. How much more can we get out of his experience? One of the things that happened to them early on when they got to a substantial town where people were practicing agriculture and they had a settlement that was similar to the kinds of towns that he would be familiar with back home, was the local leaders had them into the house or the building where they gathered. And first thing it did was have these three men take all their clothes off. People like me, who are of British extraction, are hairy compared to American Indians. And where the sun does not ordinarily cast its rays on us, we tend to be very light. And so here were these crazy looking guys, hairy, they were bearded, they had white skin under their clothes. And the locals were very, very interested in this phenomenon. There was nothing insulting about this. They were just curious. Nudity was not particularly frowned upon there. And so they said, okay, yeah, fine. Well, you can put your clothes on and go now. Thanks for dropping by. 
And by being itinerant traders, they found themselves welcome in all these communities as they moved along this trail network. Nobody wants to harm an itinerant trader because you're cutting off the future possible supply of additional things of the sort that they're selling now. In North America at that time, trade and exchange, however, was not mediated by coinage. It was barter, and it was couched as gift-giving. We see this now in political circumstances where it's regarded as corruption, but gift-giving was the way in which trade took place in 16th century North America. One of the ways in which that was facilitated was through kinship. You would try to establish some sort of kinship connection. And this was typically done by referencing totems. Oh, you're a bear? I'm a bear too. Come on in, let's have lunch. That kind of transaction would take place to facilitate trade and interaction. So they undoubtedly would have been part of that functioning trade system, even though they might not have completely understood what it was they were engaged in. They stopped at one site in Southern Pennsylvania, which was a Northern Iroquoian community. I've worked much of my career in Northern Iroquoian archeology, span so I know that culture pretty well. And they witnessed some things that we've not ever known as early as he documents it. The false face curing societies, which are something that the Northern Iroquois are famous for, already existed in 1568. He describes it. And we wouldn't otherwise know that it goes back that far. Could you just tell my listeners what that is exactly? Well, the Iroquois believed, the Iroquoians generally, there were lots of separate Iroquois nations, believed that there was no such thing as accidental death, except in the case of drowning. Nobody could quite figure out how the drowning of someone could be somebody else's fault. But every other kind of death was attributable to malice by somebody. This generated an awful lot of revenge warfare. But it also generated huge attention to curing people who were ill. And so there were societies of mostly men, sometimes women, who engaged in curing ceremonies to try to make grandpa well if he got sick. And because if he died, somebody was going to get blamed and this was going to be a problem. So you had a strong impulse to cure the sick and nothing like modern medicine to help out. So there were ritual performances that were designed to make people well. He and his two buddies, Richard Brown and Richard Twyde, observed one of these curing ceremonies. And two of these guys, not Ingram, the other two, reacted very strongly based upon their Christian beliefs. They thought this was the work of the devil and were very upset by the performance. But it was just a standard Iroquoian curing ceremony, and it involved masks. Later on, when the epidemics came, these curing societies became highly elaborated, and the masks became very elaborated and included by then things like copper and horsehair that weren't available when Ingram was there. And so the masks of the Northern Iroquois are well-known artistry here in America. This is the first mention in any document of those curing ceremonies 
and the paraphernalia that they wore to, to carry them out. That's just wonderful. What happened to the three men after they returned to England? They went back to England and were greeted by an astonished John Hawkins, who gave them each a reward. We don't know what that was. And they enjoyed celebrity status in London for a while. No doubt were interviewed by people like Walter Raleigh, who had a house that he maintained in London. And it was a guest house for people that interested him. The Indians that later were brought across from Roanoke stayed there. For all I know, Ingram stayed there from time to time. And that would be how Walsingham found out about Ingram and his two friends. Ingram and one of his companions, Richard Brown, were also on a ship that was part of Francis Drake's initial fleet that went around the world. The ship that Ingram and Brown were on got separated from the Golden Hind in the Straits of Magellan. They thought that Drake had gone down and that the ship was lost. They turned around and went back to England. And somewhere in the Strait of Magellan, there was an accident aboard ship where Richard Brown was killed. He was struck in the head by an out-of-control windlass. So he died on that journey. And the ship that Ingram was on went back to England and he found work elsewhere. The other Richard, Richard Twide, went to work on land. He decided he had enough of sailing. He also died of unknown causes. And that explains why it's Ingram alone that was taken in for interrogation. So let's return then to that interrogation, that testimony in 1582, and also to its aftermath. Would this information have had an effect on English colonization? in subsequent decades, in the voyages of people like Sir Walter Raleigh? It did because it prepped them for what they might encounter, but they realized that what they thought they knew and what they knew might not be quite the same thing. They had put together lists of resources that they thought they knew existed in America from previous stops by coastal voyages conducted by people like Giovanni da Verrazzano. And they had that information, but they wanted somebody like Ingram to sort of confirm those things and to give them additional information that he had observed. So they had that set of information that they thought might be at least partially helpful before Ingram showed up. And then they used Ingram to test that information to find out if he could confirm it or not. They still got it wrong in a lot of ways because they didn't know what they didn't know. It's one of those situations where you don't know how to evaluate what you think you can glean from various sources, living or dead. And it was because of that that Raleigh took it a step further and got help from Harriet and from John White in interrogating the Indians that came back from Roanoke and sent them over there to Roanoke themselves in order to do a greater examination of what they could find. And they got most of it right. For whatever reason, Harriet tells us that there was cassava being grown by the Indians in Virginia. There's no evidence that cassava was ever grown that far north. It didn't even reach Florida. So there are mistakes, but he financed a great deal of basically academic research at the time to try to fill out what they could expect to find when they colonized. Finally then, I'm struck 
by both the facts that this is, as you describe it, an extraordinary journey by an ordinary man, and by the fact that you have brought credibility to this account, which seems to have been almost immediately discredited within just a few years of being created. And I wonder why you think that Richard Hacklett's account of it, the, the primary source which paints Ingram as a fraud, has been nearly continually upheld since its first publication. Why has Ingram's story been considered false for so long? I think it's mainly because the original sources are so difficult to read. And even David Beers Quinn didn't tumble to the one thing that he would have spotted, but didn't. In a manuscript that he actually published of one version of the principal manuscript of the interrogations. And what he didn't see was that the first 18 entries dealt entirely with Africa. And you can see from the internal evidence of each entry that Ingram was talking about Africa. And because we know so much about African ethnology now and so much about American ethnology that we can clearly see that when he's talking about a buffalo, it's not an American bison. It's an African, West African buffalo. He describes the way in which it is killed and slaughtered. It's exactly what Africans do even today when they're butchering animals. There's, there are no mysteries about a lot of these observations now. And so what was completely mysterious in 1582 is not mysterious now. And it seems to me that Quinn saw it, but didn't recognize it for what it was. And that was why he said in the late 70s, early 80s, yeah, there's something there, but I can't quite put my finger on it. And it's too bad because he was a great historian and he could have written this book if he had lived a bit longer. Well, you have written this book. It is out now with Oxford University Press. It's called The Extraordinary Journey of David Ingram, an Elizabethan sailor in native North America. And it's a wonderful read. Thank you so much for coming on to talk about it. Thank you so much for inviting me. my producer Rob Weinberg, my researcher Esther Arnott and Joseph Knight who edited this episode. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter Tudor Tuesday details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast and please rate rank bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen including on spotify it really helps more people find not just the tutors small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.